Hello everyone and welcome to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. I am the Grumpy Surfer and your host Ads Lyson. Before we crack on, we have a couple of discount codes for you. For 15% off your Northcore outdoor and surfing gear, use the code capital letters GRUMPYPOD15 to get 15% at the checkout. Likewise, the guys at Braw Surf have given all podcast listeners 20% off their merchandise by using the code capital letters GRUMPYSURFER. Also give their YouTube channel a visit. It's pretty bloody cool. Well, what a couple of weeks it's been. The Olympics has been a gun. We saw surfing as an Olympic sport for the first time. But regardless of the conditions and what they were like, we saw the world's best battle it out in some challenging waves to say the least. Which begs the question, should Olympic surfing be held in a wave pool or the ocean? I've heard a lot of debates before, during and after the event, but whatever your opinion, I think we can all agree it was pretty fucking cool to see it happen. And congratulations to Carissa Moore and Italo Ferreira for securing the first ever surfing gold medals. This leads me nicely on to my guest this week. He's a Hawaiian uncle on the island of Maui in Hawaii. He was one of the innovators of aerial surfing in the 90s and early 40s. He also coaches current world number one and now Olympic women's gold medalist Carissa Moore while she's on the island of Maui, along with John John Florence as and when he needs the advice. To top all of these accolades, my guest is the marketing director for surfing for the global brand Dakine and has been with them since he was a teenager. So please enjoy my conversation with Micah Nickens. Micah Nickens, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. A couple of questions to start then, all three. How are you? What have you done today? And where are you? Okay, I am great. I live on Maui, so I really have no complaints. I grew up here. Um, what did I do today? I, I wrote copy for our wetsuit launch for about six and a half hours. Um, Dan will laugh about that. In fact, I was hitting him up for notes. Um, but just trying to spell out why and how our wetsuits are so awesome that we're about to launch. So I was pretty uh, head deep into that. And then I had a, an additional meeting right at the end of the day and then went and hit some tennis balls, just a little exercise for about 45 minutes. Oh, nice. So the wetsuit launch, has Dakine released its actual wetsuits over in, over in America at the moment? Because they've been released over here in Europe. They have not, no. So they got tied up in uh, those port issues in Long Beach. So they were sitting on boats, just sitting on boats. They just hadn't, didn't have the ability to bring them in and unload them until, well, now we got them finally. So we were told initially it was going to be in September. So we kind of had a little bit of time to button up all the, you know, the go-to-market plan. And uh, then we were like, oh, heads up. <laughs> They're ready to go. So yeah, we've been in scramble mode a little bit, but most of it was ready, just kind of fine tuning the, the launch. It's quite random really, because obviously you spoke about Dan, so Dan Maker, who um, runs a company called uh, Green Over Sports, who I've done a couple of podcasts with now. And he's really our link, isn't he? Because he kind of put me in touch with you. So you are the marketing director for Dakine, is that correct? Almost, yes. So I'm the marketing manager, global marketing manager of SURF. 
So I'm just responsible. We'll surf on wind. So yeah, he, he put me in touch with you purely for the fact that he was speaking a little bit about the wetsuits and I did the podcast with, with Phil Bridges a few weeks back um, who actually designed the wetsuits for you guys. And uh, I was talking to him a little bit and I found it quite funny because where we are in, in North Devon here in the UK is a really small surfing community and to have that link with such a massive group global brand like Dakine, I just find it quite quite funny and I could you explain a little bit about how all of that came about and how you got the introductions to Dan and how they became involved with you sure so Dakine was it two and a half or maybe almost three years now was purchased by a company called Marquee Brands and they operate out of New York uh so they kind of transitioned the kind to be a licensee brand versus just vertical. And uh, so we, with the majority of the kind equipment is run under a brand called JR286. And they do the leashes and traction and bags and backpacks and surf, bikes, snow accessories. The list is long. Uh, and they felt that the kind had the ability to expand. So they went into three different avenues, uh, one of which is the wetsuits. And I'm not really sure how Dan and Marquis met. That was kind of above me. And then I was kind of disintroduced to him. Um, and then we also went into footwear and we're venturing into fishing going into the 22. Um, yeah. so. The brand has grown quite a bit um, and then COVID hit and, you know, everything that was growing kind of took a hit, but uh, yeah, we're, we're still in that mode. Supply chains have been crazy. Um, I'm sure you've heard it quite a bit, but uh, I feel like we're kind of at that, the, the light at the end of the tunnel. I think we're getting a little closer. So it's everything's starting to make more sense and we're starting to see things act in a more timely manner versus before it was just kind of a dead stop so yeah, it's, a, it's it's quite a weird thing with uh, speaking to a few people that are in, involved with um with surfing as you know a, a worldwide marketing sort of piece that surfing has taken off exponentially because people have realized that you know it's a really good outlet it's outdoors it's fun you know, tied in with all the lifestyle and and all the social media and and all the all the visuals that come with that as well. But on the flip side of that, you know, product, i.e., surfboards and wetsuits, what we're just talking about, that has almost kind of taken quite a hit because the demand for it has been so great that the materials, you know, for instance, blanks are becoming quite a, a hard to find resource for people to shape boards and, and, and get it out there because, you know, it, everything's taking a hit with delivery and stuff as well. Everything's taking a hit from the top to the bottom. I mean, it's, yeah, totally. Our, I think our product hasn't really experienced any kind of compromise with the quality. You know, we're still sourcing the same materials and everything's being sourced we have such a long standing relationship with so many of our vendors uh, that, 
yeah, we would we would see it firsthand if there was anything that they were trying to cut corners on. It's just taken a lot longer. It's everything's just taking, you know, yeah. It's the reality of the world is everything. Everyone stopped. Everyone stopped what they're doing. So production, everything, it's stopped. So we're trying to catch up. Um, yeah, you're right though. Quality has I've noticed in certain things that I purchase, you like kind of see like feels like when that brand might have cut corners, but we we can't really do that. You know, it's our brand hangs our hat on being trusted. And if if we were to cut corners like that, first of all, I would just bail. I'd be over the you know, I've I've been with this brand since I was a kid. I, it's I grew up about a mile and a half from where it started. I surfed professionally and that was my my first sponsor. Uh, and then it was my first real job while being a paid athlete. Um, I like how uh, Luke said, pseudo pro surfer. I would say similar to myself, um, but yeah. So anyways, going on a, a little tangent, but I've been with the brand since I can remember. And it's, uh, for me, it's more of a, it's a job, like through and through it's a job and I'm expected to pull my weight, um, but it's pretty cool that I have so much pride in a brand that I work for. You know, it's like for me, I, I, I probably wear that logo that's on my chest and it's pretty rad. And the day that that turns around, you'll probably see my resignation letter, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. We, we have too many people that feel the same way I do that are still a part of the brand. So fortunately, that's, that's a good thing. You see that a lot again within surfing community and as a global sort of like business model is that people that are stuck in like the main brands like quicksilver decline billabong as long as you know those people that work in those jobs feel that their core values of what they join that company for in the first place of of held true they stay loyal throughout pretty much the whole of their career and you know listening to you talking there you seem to be a prime example of that as well yeah, yeah, there. It's funny. You go to the trade shows. I've been doing them for twenty years, and you see the same guys and same people, same you know, guys and, and women that are just. You can tell they show up with their cup of coffee. They get to their booth. They're probably super hungover, but then they they're so stoked to just represent who they work for. You can just tell. You know, so, it's a it's a small community that we're a part of, um, and yeah, there's a lot of people like myself that feel the same way about what they do. And we're blessed to have jobs like this, really. The, you know, I could be powering nails on the roof and in the sun all day. So I'm very blessed. <laughs> I, I suck at hammering nails just for the sake of this conversation. So I'm really thankful I'm not a roofer. Welcome to the club. You should see my house behind lots of pictures are lots of holes and I'm just covering shit up because I've destroyed it. <laughs> my DIY work, my DIY skills are shocking. Yeah, yeah, let's hang a TV. Well, I'm gonna try and then I'm gonna hire someone to fix what I did and then hang it. So oh, here's a here's a really good example of that. So the uh, the siphon in my in my toilet, I don't know why I'm lowering the tone, but I am <laughs> the siphon in my toilet right broke. So the little bit of plastic underneath that flushes it broke and anyway. Mm -hmm. So I Googled it as you do. I went to the uh, DIY store, bought in, bought a new siphon, brought it home followed all the instructions, put it, took it all apart, put it in a generic order because that's what you do, you know, take something apart, you put it back together in the reverse order, right? I thought it was that easy. Nah, nah, it wasn't. 
I put it on. I put the water back in and it just pissed water everywhere. Luckily, my neighbour who lives opposite is a plumber and he came around and fixed it for me, but it took him four hours to do it. And I was like, if it took him four hours to do it, there's no way I was going to be able to do it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a prideful thing, right? You're like, oh, this is my house, I got it. And then you just realise I need the phone number. So luckily yeah, I got yeah. a lot of friends who can do those jobs. <laughs> yeah that's what you need community right yes absolutely for so many reasons i'd love to keep talking about the decline stuff but we'll i'll leave that a little a little bit later on i'd really love to talk a little bit about you know you growing up and how you got into surfing and, and a little bit about the hawaiian culture because a little bit of ignorance on my behalf really but because we're the opposite sides of the world you know our climate's different our culture's different I, me personally, I only really pick up on that through watching film and content and, you know, reading stuff in magazines. So, you know, if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, where you grew up and, and how you got into surfing and, and maybe a little bit about culture as well. Sure. Yeah. So my parents were, they weren't married. They moved over from California. I think they were... 20, 21, and uh, eventually got married, had me, then they divorced, and then both of them remarried. They're, they're both white, and they both remarried local Hawaiians. So I grew up in a very Hawaiian culture for being a, a Haole boy. Um, you know, my, I'm, I'm, my sisters are hapa, they're half. Um, and then I have a stepbrother and a stepsister. So yeah, I was I was immersed into that lifestyle from the get-go. And it was probably one of the greatest things I could have asked for. Um got a, you know, growing up a Hollywood in, in Hawaii is kind of the reverse racism of what white people treat other minorities poorly. Like I got to feel what that was like for being white. And so I'm very, very sympathetic to racism. And I'm super sympathetic to when people attack minorities, it, it, I get pissed really quick. Um, but yeah, so it was, that was a dynamic. That was, that was a card that we were dealt. Like I was blessed to be growing up here, but I also had to deal with that kind of stuff. And as a kid, when you're super young, it wasn't like, I don't know. As we got older, I think the the racial attacks came more so, more verbal. I mean, I, I got I got picked on a little bit, but not a whole lot. Um, you just have people just come by and say fucking Holly, you know, for just because I am white. You know, I was like, ah, oh, okay, but you're big and scary and I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. But fortunately, my family is big and I have a lot of Hawaiian family. So as I got older, I was a little bit more, I wouldn't say protected, but respected, I guess, for being, you know, on the fairer side of the skin tone. Um, and that, yeah, it kind of just grew me into who I am today. Um, I, I'm very thankful for everything that was, you know, kind of made me who I am. Um, there's a few things that probably could have sharpened me to be better, but it is what it is. Surfing. My dad was a surfer from when he was a Grom. He surfed up in Redondo and Manhattan Beach and then lived down in San Diego. So he was a full surf rat from when he was young. Um, so that was just like, you know, you'd 
go sit on the toilet and there'd be six of the most recent magazines in the basket next to you that you'd just pick one up and look at it for the 800th time, you know, when you're a little kid. So that was just kind of programmed like surfing. I love surfing. That's my, our family didn't really watch uh, soccer, football or basketball, those traditional sports or, you know, it was more surfing. We're talking about surfing. <laughs> so it was pretty cool. Um, and I just, I fell in love with it really early. I was pretty young and it was just like, okay, this is awesome. I played a lot of other sports as a kid just because it was seemed like the right thing to do. But then when I got to about 14, I was like, surfing was all I really want to do. So I kind of canceled the rest of it. And I, I was playing, I was playing baseball at a pretty high level at that point. And I just was over it. Uh, took it to a level where I got to get, make a paycheck for almost 15 years. So that was, that was my goal. Um, something I really strove, strive to achieve it was hard at the time it was hard but then we were also the Maui boys so we had like we had a little bit of a, a cool vibe going where surfing and surfer magazine were throwing us some attention there was like Steve Cooney who passed away um Randy Goose uh Welsh uh Jairus Cannon who was like kind of my side by side we traveled a lot together uh Kaimana Henry. I mean, that was a long list, um, but we started to like kind of get on the map by getting in the magazines. And that was, uh, that was the launch, you know, like the Maui boys, the air boys. We weren't even known for like surfing big waves. We were known for like doing airs, which is pretty funny. So yeah, that's kind of, you know, a little long winded rant. Running off. <laughs> yeah. Doing a bit of research on you. I mean, forgive, again, forgive my ignorance, you know, I'm not a local in Hawaii, but you know, your, your precedent within Hawaii, you're known really for like your progressive surfing and your airs. W were you kind of like in that, in that phase of where guys were doing like big arcing turns, you know, at sunset and, you know, just the, the, the start of the shortboard revolution where, you know, people were just starting to get a little bit more radical where they were surfing deeper, like a pipe and the more, I mean, obviously, there's there's more secret spots around Hawaii that never really get talked about, but you you know you're getting more recognised for doing those sort of things. Um, you know, who who were the guys also that you kind of hung around with that inspired you to be able to bounce off each other to develop that as well? Well, when I was young, I would say Justin Roberson was the biggest inspiration. He passed away at a really young age when he was 18. He died in the in a car accident in the mainland um and but up until that point he was just gaining all this momentum uh herbie fletcher kind of took him under his wing and he put him in his wave warriors i think it was wave warriors four kind of gave him his first intro and he kind of smoked everyone with the progression he was doing at the time and i think that was in like 88 or 89 i mean he was just so ahead of his game so when we were kids and we just watched Justin attack a wave, you know, we'd just be sitting on the inside, just in awe, like, whoa, I want to do that. I want to do that. Like, like Justin does. And Justin did everything with power and confidence. And he was the white boy that no one messed with. He was like, he was a bulldog that had a lot of respect by everybody. And, uh, but he was nice. So he was nice to me. Like he'd push me in the waves and it was just like, wow, 
I want to be like this guy. And then boom, he's gone. So that was, I would say that was the intro to like me trying to push my own skill set and not try to like some of my friends when we were younger, you know, they just weren't as fired up as I was. So I was always looking for like that next move. I wasted so many waves on just doing moves that I thought I could try and I'd fall and my friends would get so mad at me. And then I eventually started pulling them. <laughs> and, uh, and then it just kind of went from there. It snowballed in a, in a good way. Um, but yeah, I would say Justin was really the ultimate uh, influence. And then Matt Kinoshita, who is another legend from Maui, he, he's a goofy foot, which I understand you are too, listening to your earlier podcast. And so it was hard to like mimic his surfing, but his, his approach to the rail and how he would get up under the lip and just go upside down on these backside turns at Ho'okipa, no one could touch him. No one was doing it the way he was doing it. He wasn't doing a lot of airs. He was more just attacking the face of the wave like like people do today. I mean, his tail would go out. He'd just be in the, just right on the coping of a big quarter pipe, just blasting it. And, you know, we were, oh, that was another one. I was just like, I want to do that, you know, <laughs> but I want to switch stance. But so I'd say those two were probably some of the biggest. Eric Toda, he was a, he still is a super legend. He's in his 50s and still punting airs. Um, you know, and then, then the, then there was the kids that were more around my age. I think Kaimana Henry really pushed me to like try to add more power to my surfing too, because it was it wasn't all about just trying to do airs. Like power was really important, and yeah, like Sunny and all the uncles that were just that's all they they, they surf powerful no matter what. And it was just like okay, I got to add that to my mix too. So it was kind of a a culmination of influences you know and then the air part was that just became something that we were finding momentum with and success so it was like hey do more airs do more airs even though like now like i mean my knees are in 45 but i still love to do airs but i just i have to be very selective right i'm like well that section's really good to just blast and just do a huge wrap or should i try an air and i'm like nope <laughs> you know but uh when i was younger it was just like I was hunting for air sections like way too much. It just became almost obnoxious. So like, I think I, once I stopped getting the paycheck, I hit the brakes on <laughs> my approach to that. How do you feel like the progression of surfing has developed from a professional point of view? And, and the reason why I say that is you've obviously been in that era of like, you know, the, the late 80s, 90s, 40s. And there was a period probably about I would say five to seven years ago where if you looked at the CT or the QS the majority of people were just trying to blast airs to get scores where now I think it's kind of just started to ease back out again where you know you've still got these classic old not old school these classic carving moves you still got your snaps but then everything is trying to be combined together with these progressive airs as well how have how have you seen the progression from your point of view yeah i mean ultimately the best surfer has the biggest bag of tricks like john john john's he really has no weakness other than injury he his what, surfing, his, knees? his knees i mean he but the stuff he's doing and he's a tall kid he's not short so 
he's compressing down really hard from high levels. And uh, I know when that happened, where I was watching uh, Margaret River and I could see the way he came down off that section. And I was, my buddy and I were watching it and I was like, oh, that did not look good. Damn it. Anyways, yeah, so you see John and John will do like the, I mean, in my opinion, John's the best surfer in the world. And I'm a little biased because he rides for the kind and he's just a great human, but the way he draws his lines and he just does those big round arcs and just maintains so much speed and style and finishes it with just so much flow and then goes straight into a full blown, like full rotation air without even really like skipping a beat. Uh, that in my eyes is like surfing it per close to perfection. Medina does that. Uh, you know, there's a handful of guys that can do that quite well. Um, Toledo has like sharpened up his skills, I feel a lot on the rail to match his air game, which I think was something he had to do. Um, and then Italo just came out of nowhere. I mean, he surfed well, but it was like, I think he just got this bit of confidence that just, yeah, nothing can stop him. But he's another one too. He can like really put the whole dynamic together. And then now they're like proving to ride big waves, big barrels. Um, but yeah, back then, like to make a point, one of I'm not going to mention who it was, but one of the surfers did a full rotation in one of the events in Australia. That's not typically an air guy. And they threw him. It was more because they were probably like, holy shit, he just did a full rotation. And they threw him like a seven, five, almost an eight, like, just for a little bit sloppy too. The style wasn't, it was trying to hang on to the rotation, pulled it, but didn't really connect the dots too much afterwards. And then Italo does one backside and just does a complete full rotation, lands in the middle of the trough of the wave with the same speed and then hits it again. And they still didn't even give him a seven. I was like, I was pretty baffled. I was like, he, he makes it look too easy is the problem. And then these people that strain and struggle to do it, they're rewarding them because they understand how difficult it is. So it's pretty funny. Like the really good guys have to surf against themselves truly to like get that score, which is kind of messed up. It's almost like a double backbite sometimes because when you're talking about guys like John and Italo and Philippe and, and Medina, it's almost expected they're going to do that. So when they do it, it's not really a, it's not really a surprise, but the skill level and the technique and the practice that comes with that to make it look, you know, fluid and, and, and almost effortless is something that, you know, you, well, definitely me, I'm never going to do in my lifetime, but it's just a beautiful thing to watch. And then, like you say, when you're watching the competitions and they don't get scored for it or they get marked lower than somebody else, I mean, you know, the conversation of competition scoring is another podcast in itself or another conversation in itself you know but it, yeah it, it does kind of like get the thought process going like literally what are they seeing that i'm not or you're not yeah i've met a couple of judges and hey it's a subjective sport uh you know i get it it's not as plain and clear as some of the other sports when you're judging like a floor set and they're running across the springboard doing backflips it's it's way more difficult, but I have questioned some of these judges. I'm like thinking, not, I've never said it to them, but I was like, can you even do like any of the turns that you're judging and rewarding? Probably not. So 
how do you truly understand how difficult it is for these athletes to perform the way they do and to be judged by someone that understands a concept versus has done it themselves and uh it's yeah like you said though that's a whole other podcast in itself that being said i'm very appreciative that we have surfing back on live and i'm gonna stop talking shit about it <laughs> uh, but, you know it's one of those conversation talkers though isn't it it, it makes what watching you know the, the ct live on tv or the qs is what makes it interesting because it creates these these conversations that people are talking about, if nobody talks about it, then it wouldn't be in the public eye, would it? Yeah, yeah. And with social media too, I mean, you see a score get thrown out and it's off kilter to what it should have been. You'll see it gets blown up. So they are put on the, on the hot plate for sure. Like they have to be pretty damn accurate in order to not get ridiculed by the public. How did your professional competition career go you know did you did you compete a lot when you were younger are you more sort of into like the freestyle like free surfing side of things yeah yeah my my uh competitive highlights were pretty bad to be honest i uh just i mean i got I, some wins here and there but for the most part pretty pathetic <laughs> for like being like a paid surfer like when i'd free surf it was a whole nother story you put me in a jersey and I could be a straight kook. And I realized it later in life that it was more about my breathing. I would kind of hyperventilate a bit from being too anxious and nervous. And then I would just shut my body down because I got tired. And I'd like catch one wave, get back to the peak and be exhausted. I'm like, what the heck? Like, I just, how am I tired already? You know? So it was something that came later that I like kind of had the epiphany that. I probably would have done a lot better of a job had I <laughs> maybe done more yoga, <laughs> you know, just like some good breathing therapy exercises. But yeah, my contest surfing, every once in a while, I'll jump into a contest and then have a, a fun result, you know? But uh, yeah, it was pretty sad. I, I was fortunate during that era. It was free surfing was just as important. You know, it was, there was the air shows, which I did okay in on a couple of times. Um, but ultimately, our sponsors just wanted to see magazine coverage. You know, I'd get a phone call from the photog and be like, oh, I got you a, a full page in Surfer going out the next issue. And you just be like, yes. Then you're like, okay, well, I hope my logo show. So my clothing sponsor sees that. They're stoked. I'll get a little incentive payment. And yeah, it was, it was pretty funny. That was like my stress was like trying to get magazine coverage. And for a while, it was, I was in the mag pretty darn consistently at least half the year i was in the magazine so it was it was fun well it was a question i was going to ask you a little bit later on but since we're talking about it now and, and we'll, we'll tie in a little bit with the decline sponsorship as well so obviously decline sponsors quite a few of big names jackson dorian john john we spoke about carissa shane dorian to name but a few one of the things that I was really interested in asking you about is how does the sponsorship work with with athletes and what's the relationship with the brand and the rider? You know, how do I'm not using the kind as an example, like how does the kind 
have that relationship with the rider and the sponsorship as well, you know, to keep them happy or to keep them progressing? So <clears throat> that's a kind of a trick question now. I mean, it's, it's ever evolving, <laughs> you know, back when I was doing my job, there was no social media, you know, there, there was no, I had no worry about having X amount of followers to help support what my sponsors were doing to assist. Um, the, yeah, the, the relationship is super key though. You know, it's, uh, it's, and for some of our athletes, some of our top athletes, it's more about the relationship than the paycheck. And that was like, and that's been more common with the kind than not. Um, you know, even if our, our offering wasn't as juicy as a, a competitor, it wasn't more, it wasn't about the money. It was more about, I love your product. I love the vibe. There's a good connection between, you know, the, the employment and the athletes and employees, employers. And, uh, yeah, it, you know, it's everything really. Um, I've had a few athletes hit us up and like, yeah, not, you know, I just say, unfortunately, you know, we don't have the budget, but it just doesn't make sense. Like they're, they're high profiled, but there's certain things about the chemistry that just didn't really make sense. So you kind of get to make that decision. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes it sucks The the job has a downside when you're telling people no, no is never a fun thing to say, but yeah, the relationship and the connection to the brand is super huge. It's really key. Do you find, well, not do you find, is there like a set budget for having athletes to be part of the brand? Or is there a set number of athletes that you can only have? Because I can imagine, I mean, I was listening to um, a podcast with Britt Merrick talking about Channel Islands. And he, he was talking about they used to have loads of people on their roster. But to have that relationship as a shaper with, with those people can be quite difficult because they've got so many different needs and wants for, you know, for little things for their boards. And there's only a few of them that, that shape. So they had to kind of strip it back and, and just have, you know, a streamline of, of people that they actually have associated with them is that a, a similar thing that happens with the kind where you just have a set number or your set budget where you go right we're going to have these people involved yeah i mean yeah we were back when the kind was originally owned by rob kaplan i would say we were kind of on a similar playing field as, as ci you know like we had tons of writers our reps had writers or so we had shop writers <clears throat> and then the reality is the, the, the brands get purchased and then the new owners start to see the numbers and they crunch the numbers and then they implement budgets and the budgets can't be exceeded. So then you have to make tough decisions. Um, and uh, yeah, that's part of the, the game where it sucks because I've had to have like really unfortunate conversations with people that I should have never had, but it is what it is. It's business and it's over my head and there's not much I can do about it unless I want to walk away from my job. Um, but it's a, it's a roundabout number that you just have to, and it's a, it's a magic number that comes out of a hat evidently where it's like, okay, we want you to do all these things with this small number. <laughs> like, okay. But yeah. It doesn't sound so, too unfamiliar. Yeah. Every brand knows that what that's like, but yeah, no, it's a, it's a set number that you need to make sure you don't go over. It's important. 
What's your role with the with the athletes or with the pros? Um, do you have a lot of input with them? Uh, you know, are you coaching them? I coach Carissa. I coach her for uh, just for the Maui Honolulu event. She's been. I've been working with her for quite a while now. She, it's not, you know, Carissa is just an amazing athlete and trying to, it's not about talking about surf strategy with her. It's just kind of just keeping her in a good headspace the entire time, you know, it gets stressful. You, you fall on a really good wave and you needed that score and you only have four more minutes left. You need to breathe, relax and get back out and <laughs> pray. But yeah, so I've coached her. It's been really fun. She's just an amazing human. She's such a sweetheart. Um, it's been it's been a fun roller coaster. We've we've seen a lot of wins. We, her her she's probably one more out there than she's lost. Um, but there's been a couple losses where it's like, oh, was I at fault for that? Was that my fault? Like, should I have said something? You, know, you kind of want to take responsibility for it just because you're out there with her and. Probably, I don't know, maybe a little bit, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, you know, just kind of keeping her, she'll look over at me after she paddles out and she wants to see my reaction. And it's most of the time I'm just like, like big breaths, big breaths. You got a long paddle back out, catch your breath, get, get to the outside. You might whip it and go again. So yeah, it's been fun. But otherwise I, I coach a lot of kids, like just pro bono. I just, I loved, you know, when Justin gave me tips and pushed me in the waves, I was like this, the raddest thing in the world. I was just like so mesmerized by his kindness. And, you know, I'm an uncle that can, I will teach you how to ride a wave and I'll tell you to go in if you're being a little dipshit too, you know, like it's, I do it with love. It's always with love. But if you're being out of line, I'm going to call you on it. Um, it like they did to me. So anyways, but yeah, it's, it's fun getting involved with the athletes in that sense. Uh, John's got his team, um, you know, you know, most of the athletes have their own crew, but Carissa, she chooses to work with me when she comes to Maui. Would you take that, uh, the credit for the rotational air she pulled out at Narrabeen? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> That's a bit <laughs> of an awkward question right well, there, isn't it? <laughs> well, years ago, she called me up and she's like, Hey, I want to come to Maui and learn how to do airs. It was in the summertime. <clears throat> and uh, like, all right. So I heard her dad flew over and we just worked on, on just popping the air. It wasn't so much the reverse at the time. It was just more than just getting lift off the, the lip and, you know, just how to transition and land it. And she did great. Uh, I think, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you need to post your score. You need to get, you need to get at least a couple of sevens to get through a heat. So it puts a lot of pressure on them to not be able to really go out a wave like they wish they could, you know, they, they kind of end up having to pull back a bit because it's their paycheck. They need to, you know, she, she's on her way to winning another title again, but not to say she serves safe by any means. She goes to town on what she, you know, her approach, but when you go progressive out of your wheelhouse or it's a little bit uncomfortable, then, then that becomes a little bit, yeah, it, you tend to hesitate on going after those moves. What's your thoughts on the, the correlation between women and the men eventually coming together to compete as sort of like one whole competition? Because I mean, I, I'm not biased. It's not because I'm not being sexist, but 
I prefer watching women surfing to the men's stuff. I find sometimes that watching, again, we're talking about watching surfing on TV, uh, on TV or, or online. Sometimes it can be quite forced for the men where where the women, the, the power, the drive and the flow and, and the maneuvers that they're pulling looks, it's going to sound weird, prettier on the wave. And it looks like the tech, you can see their technique a little bit more. And I think the, the style comes out a bit more where from the men's side, sometimes unless you, you're really picking at things, you, it's hard to see the style because it's so robotic sometimes. I mean, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think Carissa and Steph Gilmore are two of like the most prettiest styles of surfing period and when i say pretty not for a female like i think john john has a very pretty style as well as weird as that sounds but it's just it's graceful it flows there's no kinks it's and 100 i mean i i i totally enjoy i take notes like i watch those girls surfing honolua that's in my backyard and i'm like mentally saying i don't know if i've ever done a turn like that out here you know, that's looked that clean and good. Like, I want to do that now. I want to surf like them. So I totally agree. I think uh, the women are stepping up their game big time. And then you get the young ones, like Erin Brooks. We just signed her this year. And uh, she, she's a, she is amazing. She's, she's just this dedicated little powerhouse of a human with a huge heart that just absolutely love surfing and she's pretty fearless like she she's been smashed on the reef she's been held underwater forever and she's a she's a unique one for sure you know and there's a there's there's a handful of these young girls that are stepping up the game where it's going to put a lot of pressure on on the current surfers once these girls are in their 16 17 year olds and they're getting wild cards and they're coming in and going i'm going to blast a full rotation on this section you know, they're, they're Sierra Kerr. Uh, I mean, there's a handful of them that are already like, and then that they're going to influence the ones below them and the ones alongside them to really step their game up. So I think women's surfing is really going to elevate in the next three to five years at a level that's going to be like, holy smokes, like just with all that, the progression above the lip, I think they absolutely kill it when it comes to rail surfing and you know, blasting sections, but yeah, I think this next generation, when it comes to aerials, it's going to be pretty in intense. <laughs> it's going to be, especially for the, the current athletes. I know some of the, the younger kids coming through, I mean, I watch it now, it's just, uh, you talk about your knees. I mean, I'm a few, year, a few years younger than you, but just watching some of the shit they're trying to pull off, I'm like, oh my God, my body would just collapse if I did that. <laughs> uh, yeah, <clears throat> it's a, uh, yeah yeah we're it's the sad reality of of entering our our level but i you know i still i still try them i still go for it if if the stars align and i feel like there's a, a good section the tide's not too low i i will huck a big one <laughs> mate if i could actually, do airs i'd do them as well yeah i pulled my best air in my life actually three years ago oh really so, yeah just big old rotation and my buddy actually documented it so yeah, there was proof, <laughs> but I haven't done one since. Not like that, no. What, like Nathan Fletcher-esque? Uh, no, no, no. That's wish. like jumping over building stuff right there, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. 
Nate wears a cape when he surfs because he's flying. He's those knees, man. He's my age, and he has been a pro snowboarder, uh, motocross, skate. He's amazing. I, I have a lot of respect for him as an athlete. How do you feel that as a brand, you know, going back talking about that a little bit, how do you feel that how brands can develop younger kids coming through? Because obviously they've got their influences from, you know, our generation. You've got the generation that's competing right now and they're the generation, you know, after that. How how can a brand develop younger kids to become better, basically? Or, or to brand them according to what they feel they should be or I, I I feel like that question leads to like Mikey Wright you know he's he's comes from that same family as Owen and his sister and he's like rocking a mullet and super rock and roll and like to flip off the cameras and it's like is that him or is that like this rad new edgy vibe that quick needs to youthen up the brand. Um, so I don't know, like he's surfing wise, he's phenomenal, but like image wise, is this something that he wanted or was it something that made sense for Quick to kind of pursue him with? <laughs> well, you could yeah. be a Matt Wilkinson and be being towed behind a horse surfing, singing his new latest song that he's just brought out. <laughs> and, but I think he's absolutely unique in what he does. You know, he would show up to surf contests on roller skates. He he had like a wetsuit for every event that was super unique to wherever that location was. Yeah, it was a bummer he kind of fell out of the scene because he was a lot of fun to watch. I wasn't a huge fan of his surfing style, but as a person, he was just, yeah, he was entertaining. Super nice. In, in he was person. one of those guys that was always an underdog but he always just sort of like pulled it out at random moments and when he was number one for you know for a for a couple of events you're like that but he was absolutely smashing it out of the water that was what, what five years ago or something like that yeah he could do no wrong it was it was like the first like four or five events yeah yeah I mean, he was on a tear it started at snapper yeah I and mean, then he went so he had to go to Bells, which is a larger one. He surfs really good at Bells, too, backside for being kind of a lanky, skinny guy. I was pretty impressed with that. But yeah, yeah, Wilco had his moment. It Unfortunately, it didn't really take him as far as it could have. I mean, even what did, what did he end that year? I don't even think he made the top five. But it was, it, it was a great run while it lasted. You know, I think he definitely garnished a huge fan base during that period, for sure. Just going to change the direction of the conversation a little bit. I'd like to go back a little, talk a little bit more about culture. Uh, you know, I, I've, I developed my sort of like surfing niche. I mean, I'm from the Midlands in the UK, which is no, you know, it's probably about a three or four hour drive from the UK now uh, from the coast, but I now live down by the ocean and one of the things that I that was always something that drew me to surfing as as a culture was you know being a waterman and and identifying with the fact that surfing's awesome, but it's understanding you know the ocean and the tides, the wind and and all those things that are associated, but not just like in the ocean, but it also reflects you know, where you're on lakes or, you know, rivers and, and you, whether you're paddling on an SUP or, or something else. 
is being a waterman you know something that's held as like a a priority thing for for the culture in hawaii because i know you know watching documentaries it was kind of held quite high with people sometimes just depend who you're around i mean i have hawaiian family that they're amazing fishermen and spirit you know spear fishermen but couldn't ride a wave to save their lives but held in high regards for being lavaya like fishermen and and that's really respectful in our culture for sure so I was like the token holly boy in my family that was the surfer boy you know none of not a lot of my family surfed they boogie board a little bit or did it on the side but it wasn't like I was definitely they kind of almost made fun of me because I was like a bit of an outcast in that sense but uh like it just depends on the culture and then there's there's people that just live and breathe the ocean and and whether they're surfing or doing a downwinder or foiling or they're just connected to the water yeah there's there's a high level of respect for people within that community for sure as long as they're within that community they they'll feel the same way it's there's a lot of different cliques on this tiny little island for many reasons um you know there's a lot of locals that don't really go in the ocean at all they love to play softball or you know what i mean or play horseshoes and just drink with their friends or surfing i could be like hey i was in the magazines and then you're like okay anyways you know it, it, they could care less but it just depends on the group you're with but i kind of surrounded myself with ocean lovers you know for the most part and we all kind of fed off each other's energy of pushing each other trying to step our game up you know and for bragging rights amongst our own peer um and yeah it was we still do it that's that'll never end we're just doing that do, yesterday do you feel that uh, like heritage and um you know like the past is something that's kind of held in regard with people now or it's kind of uh, when i say people the hawaiian culture or do you feel as time progresses on, it's kind of getting diluted and those groups are getting smaller because of, you know, Western influences and, um, you know, and we're talking about social media and, you know, things like that. It's even on levels of gentrification, you know, it's, yeah, <clears throat> the, the islands are just becoming too expensive to even live in and it's, they can't even afford to stay here and, and do the things they love to do. It's, it's really sad. That's almost like a, a generic, if you live by the coast, I mean, like for, for here in the UK, and I don't know what it's like in America, but it's, there's, there's a, a little town in the UK called Newquay, and it, it was, it's generically seen as like the hub of surfing for, you know, in the Southwest of the United Kingdom. But there was a few new news articles a while back suggesting that it's becoming more and more difficult for people to buy houses in that area because because it's a sought after place to live so the the price index of of housing has gone through the roof but there's no affordable housing for people to live anymore so you know where let's say the average person that's on an average wage can't really afford to live there anymore whether you're a fisherman whether you work in a factory or, or something like that i find that is 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 quite a disappointing fact because 
it's people with a lot of money that are buying these big homes, but then they only go down there in the summer or whenever they're on holiday. And then the most of the time they're, they're left unattended. But then the people that want to live there and want to have that constant lifestyle is, is becoming more and more difficult to hold. Is that the same with you guys too? Yeah, absolutely. It's, property taxes go up which pushes them away pushes them off the island it's yeah and then these people like you say like they come that's their second home maybe even a third and a lot of them come just with no aloha in their heart it's pretty sad they're they're they work a fast busy life wherever they're from and they just bring that same mentality to the island and uh islands and it's uh it's it it gets old really quick to be honest you know we grew up where respect was a big deal you just you had to show it you didn't have a choice if the uncle snaked you on a wave you didn't say shit you just go <laughs> back out hopefully he didn't yell at you because you actually dropped in behind him you know it was it get your head slapped told to go in it was real you know and then there was like the bullies that just did all that because you know but there was a, a high level of of respect that we had to adhere to and now you get there's so many people that move over here they'll throw the sewer out so quickly or call the cops even though they're the ones causing the disturbance causing the trouble and as soon as you turn and show them a little teeth then they're just like whoa i can't believe you're talking to me that way it's like where where do you get off like treating someone this way where it's okay they're just gonna like you know walk away from something like this and i was like no nah, it doesn't it doesn't fly that way you, you know show respect or this vibe's not going to work well for you and uh it's especially with covid it's crazy how many people have moved to maui a lot of people moved away because there was a lot of jobs that went away but a lot of people with money that could afford to just locate on maui work from their computer because everyone's working from home all of a sudden that was a huge influx and it it's brought it dilutes the levels of aloha and respect for sure it's just something that you know it's going to happen but it's just, it sucks when you see it happen so blatantly and and it just repeats itself over and over yeah it definitely has a negative effect on definitely if you're living in an area that is so rich you know like hawaii potentially is i don't know rich in culture and you kind of see people getting pushed away from it. It is it is quite disappointing. And I'll use the example. It's a really stupid one. But, you know, my kids love Moana. Mm. Um, and, uh, but I also can sort of like associate with it a little bit because, you know, I'm, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a waterman, but I like everything from windsurfing, sailing, fishing. I try to do it all if I can, in the time that I have to do it. Um, I'm not necessarily an expert in any means with all of them, but I just enjoy, I, I enjoy doing them. Um, does that make me better than anybody else? Probably not, but I try to uphold the, the, the self principles of, you know, if I go down to the beach, I take my rubbish away, for, uh, away with me. You know, if I'm fishing, I don't take the the smallest fish away but i put them back then take the biggest fish you know away to eat and and all that sort of thing you know i try and i'm try and be a little bit respectful like that 
Um, but then you see other people coming down, you know, I'm going to stereotype holiday makers that are coming down and they leave shit everywhere and, you know, they buy all these polystyrene boards and they leave them on the beach or they just throw them in a skip. So, you know, all the non-recyclable stuff. And there's a lack of that respect because they don't live there. And I just find that's becoming a little bit more common. And you talk about the COVID thing, you know, here in the UK, we call them stay vacations where people can't go abroad anymore. And they've got to go use their, their, their local area. So coming down to the beach, furthest it's going to take you is about four hours if you want to drive there. You know, it, it becomes almost like um, not an infatuation, but an escapism for people but then they just leave it in a shit state and then they go home again. Um, it's quite a difficult thing to try and regulate, I think. Yeah. It, it's a, it's, it's not, there's no point. You can, but they'll just keep coming and coming and coming. I, you know, I have to be a good example in the water to the kids um, and I have to watch my temper. But I, I guess now I just try to educate people who are being super naive versus yelling at them i'll just let them know this is what you did and please don't do that again you know and it's a lot of times i'll be like hey thanks a lot okay cool and then sometimes they just don't like to be talked that way so they just immediately you know react and it's like all right where are we going from here i'm not gonna get in a fight over this but this guy's talking smack now i'm like you just can't win you know like it's it's a yeah it's pretty sad. There's, we have like this massive influx of tourists right now. We're up by like, I think 8% from 2019. So it's actually exceeding what 2019 was, which was a very uh, active summer. But we, we, yeah, we, we're lacking hotels, we're lacking rental cars, but they're coming anyway. And they're coming kind of with the mindset of like, America owes me for staying in my house for as long as I did. I'm gonna go out and do whatever I want. You know, like I did my part, now it's my turn. And they just come with this just bullshit attitude. It's pretty bad. It's like, it's more common than it's been. And there's just so many people like driving on the roads, they'll just be driving in front of you and they'll just be like, oh, that's a cool store. And they'll just slow down on the highway instead of like pulling over to get a good look at it. It's like fuck off the road, like pull over <laughs> you know, and go look at it. But why should so uh, yeah. And it's price to pay for living on this beautiful island, I guess. But yeah, it's the, the, the levels of ignorance through the, the blinders of being a tourist right now are pretty insane. Let's turn this negativity into a bit of positivity. So I, I like I, I, I like I've, I've noticed you're into a little bit of martial arts. I saw you doing some, uh, some uh, Muay Thai the other day. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I've my, my stepdad was really in the karate and boxing since I was like five. So he'd take me out in the yard and be like, okay, we're going to work on these things. And I'd be so excited. And, uh, and then my, my step grandma on my other side had like 10 karate and ninja videos back in the day that were, you know, uh, Chuck Norris and American Ninja and just these classics from back in the day, very cheaply made, but my brother and I would just watch them over and over and over. Um, and I, I just was really, really fond of martial arts 
it was always something that I don't, I'm not, I don't, I don't intend to use them to hurt people. It's more just a lot of fun and a lot of self-discipline and, you know, it's, it's a challenge for me to get better at something. I like getting things I love to do. I like to get as good as I can at, and that's, you know, jujitsu and, uh, and Muay Thai were introduced to me about 10 years ago, maybe a little longer. And uh, I just fell in love with both. You know, I, I kept getting kind of really hurt from jujitsu. So I ended up kind of veering more towards, I'm sure you know, more towards Muay Thai. And I've still gotten hurt doing that too, but it's a little less on the injury. You know, the totem pole, I'm not blowing out my knees and getting hurt like I used to with jujitsu, but I love it. I'm a big fan. I watch all the UFC fights. I study them all. I, I'm a fan. I'm a non-violent fighter. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm passive. I'm a passive aggressive. I would call it. <laughs> that's that's actually what I am right there too. In a nutshell. I mean, I I, I got into doing jujitsu purely for the fact that when the swell was flat or it was pretty rubbish, which is you know the majority of the time here, um, it was it was something else to do because you know my job at the moment consists of working in a gym, training people, and. I don't really want to, you know, I've, <laughs> I've done all of the exercises, I've done all the press-ups, I've done all the burpees, I just wanted something different that would kind of test you, and when I did my PT course, um, we did something called, we've got our, our, our Royal Marines on Arm Combat Syllabus, which is all, everything from striking, takedowns to room entries and stuff, but it incorporates, you could almost call it MMA, because it incorporates lots of different martial arts, to use the basic techniques to to apply them uh, in a combat situation um, but when i when i did that the first day it was a week-long course an instructor course and the first day i did uh five five minute rounds never grappled before with five different people that were fresh and after that 25 minutes i went into the corner of a squash court and I had to turn away because I was pretty much in tears because I was in so much of the hurt locker. It was unbelievable. <laughs> so after that, I was like, do you know what? I'm not interested. But then a few years later, I was like, do you know what? I'm actually going to give it a go. And then, you know, you realize that the whole point of having lots of different ways to do lots of different techniques and there's no set, you know, kata like you would have in karate. That's what was making my mind ticking. And, you know, we were talking about people in this covid situation i find it it's such a great escapism and i'm i feel very fortunate that i'm passionate about surfing and escapism and jujitsu which is also my escapism is escapism as well and i think that's quite a beautiful correlation sometimes it is it's therapy it's strictly therapy that is escapism is we need it um especially when you can fire off endorphins when you, you know, especially in a good role and you're exhausted and you both kind of just stalemate, no one wins, but you just like bell rings and you just fold over and you're just like, ah, oh. but then like you get that wave that kind of hits you and you're just like, ah, oh, that was so rad. So yeah, this escapism of it's big. And then I've actually incorporated tennis into my game of, of escapisms and tennis is, become more of a focus not not more than surfing but it's it's almost up and up at the moment so it's yeah he's staying active you know just at our age we 
I mean, you're, you're a trainer. That's you're, you're just always active, but I'm on a computer. I, I can easily get lazy if I allow myself to. So I don't like the gym. I don't like working out. It just bores me. I, I'll go in there and I'll forget the routines. And then I just start twiddling my thumbs. And then, but I go into playing sports where I'm getting better and then I'll take a couple steps back and then I'll take a couple steps forward. It's uh, it's yeah, it's a fun excitement that I, I really appreciate. One of the things I kind of fear a little bit is that the point where, you know, I've done 22 years in May next year and, you know, that that's my time up. I'm, I'm not getting extended. Hence the reason why I'm, I'm doing something called the Bowen technique. Um, that's what I'm building a business for, you know, in the next few months to start doing, you know, to, to develop that for me to be able to do when I leave. And one of the things I fear out of that is that if I, when I leave next year, I won't have the gyms and stuff like that. I'm quite tight as well with my money, so I don't like spending it. <laughs> I don't want to be buying gym memberships and stuff like that. I say that now, is that if I don't keep these things going, my body's just going to fall apart through muscle atrophy and, you know, all those niggling injuries I've always kind of had hidden i guess are gonna are gonna start coming out because i'm not maintaining that that level of um physical ability i guess you could call it um but yeah that's that's what comes with age right yeah you know it's funny i i started uh an instagram account called the uncle's movement oh, right, and okay. it's basically it's a, it's a funny title but the meaning behind it is it's a mindset, you know, it's up to you what your mindset is. Yeah, you're middle aged, but are you going to throw in the towel? Or are you going to try to just send it into the night, you know, do your best, like die, just charging forward versus like, oh, my knees hurt. I'm going to give up everything I love to do or go get operations or go get them fixed and get back on the, you know, on the horse. And uh, it's, so it's been pretty fun doing that. It's you get all walks of life that are involved because they all feel the same way. You know, it doesn't, they don't have to be surfers or jujitsu. They just have to have that mindset. Like, yes, I'm going to strive to be a better me every day I can. And it's, it's, it's a fun way to like pump up people that are your average Joe's that don't normally get attention for their accomplishments. And you throw a post out on some person, I'll do a little bio on the person, read about them. It's like, look on their Instagram and see what they like to do. And yeah, it's cool. So yeah, that's kind of where that, that, that was created. The uncle's movement was, you know, we're coming into the middle age, but that doesn't mean jack shit. You know, we can still, we can still send it till the day we die. Peter Pan syndrome. Big time. That's a hashtag I use quite a bit. <laughs> well, it's quite prevalent, I think. It is, you know, it's like, you can lie to yourself, you know, it's like, ah, I'm okay. I'm okay. I can still do this. I can still do this. Your body's probably telling you otherwise, but as long as you lie to yourself in a good way, it's a, it's a healthy way to live. Mike, we've been going there for over an hour. So I, I would like to tie it up with a, with a couple of little things. Um, so what are the, your, what are your aspirations and Dekine's aspirations for the future? My aspirations with Dekine? Um, either or so with, with the brand or on your own uh i don't know i i i would love to see my aspirations with the brand are to see it just to take it as far as we can you know to to take over 
retail space that we've always had trouble taking over to, to become at that level of where I feel like, wow, we kind of finally got there. You know, it's in, in surf leashes and accessories and bags and all that. Yeah, we kick butt, but there's certain categories that we're not there. At. And I would, you know, my goal is to, to get us there with our team to, to be looked at no matter what you look at it, at the kind, any bit, any other product you associate with like a grade. So that's a big aspiration for me. Um, you got personal, personal goals. Yeah. Personal goals. You know, I just to, to be a good dad, a good family man, um, a good friend, a good, uh, you know, I, in the future, I, I, actually would like to possibly run for mayor of Maui. Um, so that's, that's kind of a, I don't know, that's like a pipe dream goal, but, but I, I, I do want to have some kind of leadership role on the island at some point where I can do good things for the community. Um, that would be, that would be a goal of mine. That is a goal of mine. Um, whether it's 10 to 20 years away, I don't know, but yeah, just to be a well-respected you know, person in this community. That's, that's, I think that's an important goal that I, I want to maintain. If we don't have goals, you've got nothing to look forward to, right? Absolutely. It's, yeah. And then you throw in your jujitsu and your tennis and your surfing goals and you get quite busy. <laughs> I'd like to tie this up with a quick fire round, if that's okay. Sure. So the first question is, if you had one surfboard fin set up for the rest of your life, would it be single fin, twin fin, thruster, bonza, finless, or quad? Thruster. Your favorite surfer and why? It's Kelly Slater, black and white. His, his uh, when he released black and white, that was probably the coolest. That was the biggest connection I had to an athlete and to the love of the sport, I think, even up until this day. The first surfing movie you've ever watched? Hmm. Uh, Blazing Boards, I believe. It was in this theater that no longer exists on Maui. Um, there was like 20 of us Groms. We were probably like 10, anywhere from like eight to 12 and we all sat in the front and we're all like okay the first big barrel that happens we all gotta scream and we were so excited for that and i remember that vividly I, i'm pretty sure it was blazing boards would have been a bit rubbish if it was a longboard film and there was no barrels in it <laughs> although i really really loved the endless summer i i watched this the first endless summer probably 50 times it's a timeless classic though, isn't it? It's amazing. Just the narration, the quirkiness, the just them exploring the world with gigantic 50 pound surfboards. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, I love that movie. Okay, so next question is the last surf movie you've seen? Probably an edit. Um, <clears throat> Rainbows in the Rear View is a... a edit that Albie and Matt Miola are launching uh, tomorrow. Actually, the premieres tomorrow on the mainland. Um, I watched that a few weeks ago and then I watched a couple edits recently. But like, 
plugging in a DVD or an a actual VHS. It's been a, it's been a minute. <laughs> I think everyone's stuck in that translation. At the <laughs> I want to say though, I I did. You know what I did actually watch is I I got on YouTube and typed in Taylor Steele and I I watched like just segments of his early you know momentum loose change and they brought back so many memories the, the silly skits the kelly rocking over in the trash can and i think he had just won like some big event i'm sure the sponsors after that were like what the hell <laughs> <laughs> yeah it brings back just those early memories the best person to share a lineup with? Well, I would say my daughter um, until a certain size, and then she's going to hit the brakes. Um, and then probably my brother. My brother and I have had some magical sessions uh, surfing in Ma'alaya, getting up super early, even camping, and just exchanging just beautiful waves. We both lived on the North Shore. We moved over there and we're like, older grams and we'd get up super early and surf backdoor and pipe before the cameras came out because that was the only way we'd catch waves uh, so i'd have to say my brother for sure the worst person to share a lineup with oh there's a lot of them in my <laughs> in my some people don't like answering this question um yeah i'd have to say will hunt <laughs> He's a, he's an aggressive, he's my, he's my buddy, but he just, he's kind of like, he sees the ball and he's like a golden retriever. He wants the ball. And that's kind of how he gets when he sees a wave, even though he might've just caught one. So, although he'll probably be the first guy to get my back if I was in trouble too. So there's a kind of a catch 22 there. So. Everyone yeah. knows those sort of people though. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's many of them for sure. If there was one place to surf for the rest of your life, where would that be? Honolulu. Michael Nickens, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast and I appreciate your time. I appreciate it as well. Thank you so much. So that's it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the legend is Michael Nickens. Remember to tune in for the WSL competition, the Corona Open Mexico which is in Barra de la Cruz in Mexico between the 10th and 19th of August. That is going to be an amazing event because that is just a place that throws out barrels when the swell's good. And it's going to be amazing to see the world's best smash it out there. And also tune in on the 26th of August, which is in two weeks time, for a fantastic conversation with the one limb surfer and army veteran, Martin Pollock. Catch you all then. Thanks for listening.